what happens if you ask a geriatrician, is there a way to actually improve the quality of life for somebody with dementia and give them a purpose? Hmm. You might be surprised on how that helps them and you, the caregiver, too. Stay tuned. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional, and financial strain does not have to be your M.O. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for, and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight, there is a better road ahead. Hello, everybody. It's Nancy May from Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. And we have a rather, well, it's an interesting show, but I think all the shows are interesting. So I'm kind of biased because <laughs> I, I kind of geek out on this older stuff, which you probably know by this point. But my current guest is Dr. Alan Power, who is an internist, a geriatrician, and Schlegel Chair in Aging and Dementia and Innovation at Schlegel University in Waterloo in Canada. I probably screwed that up a little bit, but you'll get the whole show notes and the details in the bio. And on top of it, he's also an award-winning author on dementia and drugs and all the interactions which going on, which is exactly what we're going to dive into here today, because I am fascinated with the whole concept of what's going on with medication, pharmaceuticals, what works, what doesn't work. When you've been diagnosed with dementia or somebody's been diagnosed with dementia, do you give something or Alzheimer's or, or do you just like cross your fingers and hang on for the ride and hope? So with that, Alan, thank you. Welcome to Elder Care Success and like, wow. Like, where thanks, do we yes. start, right? Oh, no. where do we start? Yeah, thanks, Francis. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. And we can start anywhere. We'll just sort of dive in. And maybe when people listen to the podcast, you'll get questions and comments that will lead us to a follow-up that we, where we can dive further. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to really just start with the whole concept of drugs as it relates to the whole dementia or cognitive issues. Because there's a lot of new medications that are coming out today or in the pipeline and one that's recently been approved that is dealing with dementia, Alzheimer's, and other sort of cognitive issues that is, I guess, we as caregivers and family members are hoping that this is going to reverse everything and make our world better and our loved one's world better. And poof, you know, like a, a magic wand, we are, we are fairies and the world is better again. But that's not necessarily the case, or is it? No, there, there's no magic wand, unfortunately. We can talk a bit about the drugs, but there is actually something that we can do. And I think that's really important. I think a lot, the way a lot of people and organizations portray hope is by saying, you know, if with a little more money, a little more research, we will find a cure. And that's what you should hope. But the truth is that you can have hope today, and there are things people can do to improve their lives that have nothing to do with pills. We can talk about the pills, the good and bad, and we can talk maybe things that people while well, waiting let's for talk about pills. the pills first. Yeah. And absolutely. then we'll talk about the other, the good stuff. Absolutely. I mean, not, not that pills are bad all the time, right? Well, when we talk about dementia, in particular Alzheimer's, where most of the approvals have actually been sought, there are basically two big groups of medications that we'd be talking about. One of them are the ones that are meant to improve the cognitive function, the thinking of people with dementia. The other big group are the groups that are given to people who seem to be distressed or exhibiting 
different expressions that, that people find a challenge. All the anti-anxiety and just yeah. like shut up and zone out over there in the corner, yeah. right? Yeah. So when I wrote my first book called it Dementia Beyond Drugs, I was referring to the second category. I wasn't saying that you should never give anything, that there's never a, a reason to take a drug like Aricept. But I was talking specifically about those antipsychotics, anti-anxiety medications, the ones that are so commonly given to people with dementia who seem to be distressed. So they are, they're a little bit, little bit different as far as So we can start maybe with the cognitive ones, if you'd like, because sure. that's the first sure. thing. Let's go there, because those are the ones that give hope to people yeah. that this is either going to prolong life or just get rid of the de disease or reduce this, the symptoms early on or later on. Yeah. The first group that's been out there for a couple of decades now are the group of drugs. I'm going to use some brand names here, if that's okay. Because sure. they're more recognizable to people. Drugs like Aricep and Namenda and Exelon, Residine, those are the pills that have been out for a couple of decades or longer now. And those are meant to be cognitive enhancers is the way they're advertised. But really what they are is they provide what neurologists often call symptomatic treatment for people. So what mm -hmm. they do is we lose, we lose a lot of chemicals in the brain, pr primarily one that's called acetylcholine. It's a very important messenger in the brain. And this does not give you more, but what it does is it keeps the acetylcholine in the space between the nerve cells a little bit longer so that they can fire a bit more effectively. That's the theory behind it. They were modest, and I have to emphasize modest improvements with these drugs when they were first tested, when they were first approved by the FDA. Before that, the only thing we had that was approved was an earlier version of those drugs called Cognix. Some people might remember from the 80s or 90s. It I love was the names, horrible right? Drug. Yeah, pretty horrible drug because of the side effects, and it didn't do much for problems and other things. As soon as these came out, they very quickly went off the market because it was These are very controversial. Some people think that they're great. Other people think that maybe they shouldn't have proved, but that there was nothing else to give. I'd say in my personal practice with the drugs, I, I've broken the people I've seen into three groups, about thirds. Mm -hmm. There's a group of people for whom the drug seems to help them to focus and think a little better, at least for a period of time, without bothering them too much, and so they continue them. There's another group where they're not sure, and they may or may huh. not choose to continue them, depending on their, on their opinion. And the third group absolutely cannot take them. They either don't help or more commonly have adverse side effects, upsetting their stomach or, or causing problems with their bladder or problems with heartbeat and some of those things that they can do. And so they stop. So they do seem to help some people. And I'm willing to give them to people if they'd like to try them. But as you alluded to at the beginning, we need to be realistic about what the drugs do and what they don't do. You know, on the original studies, they measured cognitive function on a scale of about 70 points. And they made a, they made a maybe two or three point difference out of 70 that was observable by testing, but wasn't always something people felt. So once again, statistically, there was an improvement, but they may not be noticeable to a lot of people who use the drug. So let me ask you there, everybody has some sort of cognitive impairment and you give them a drug and they're having problems communicating. How do you really know whether it's making a positive impact or not? Well, I guess you probably figure out the positive impact, but if somebody's not feeling well and they can't tell you that they're not feeling well or that there's a change in the way they have a, they may have a hallucination or hallucination. I guess I got to get that word out right. <laughs> and uh, how do you tell? Because that's a big question, right? 
that, that this is a really important question because it not only speaks to how these drugs were approved, but it speaks even more importantly, I think, to the new drugs that have come out for Alzheimer's, which I think are much more problematic than the Aricept and the Menda because of their dangerous side effects. And it also, when we get to the other category, the antipsychotics, that's an important one too, because the studies by which antipsychotics were tested relied on self-report and people who it might be arguable couldn't self-report the way that they were expected to. So you mentioned side effects, dangerous side effects to the current yeah. drugs, the new ones that are out. What are some of the dangerous side effects that you need to worry about? My husband and I used to talk about and joke about all these, these commercials that would be on television. There's a new one that there's a woman that's dancing and she's singing. And I woke up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, my God, I can't get that song out of my head for diabetes or something. But the joke was you had to read the little tiny type and we would say causes gigantic eye and death. <laughs> right? That's yeah, like, yeah. what next? But what are yeah. the major side effects that we need to worry about for so the new drugs that came out, drugs, right? Yeah. yeah. New drugs that came out. The one that came out last year was called Aduhelm is the brand name. The new one, I'm blocking on the brand name, but it's a relative of Aduhelm. Acanumab was the other one. And it is also, it's moving through approval at this point. And now Medicare, who had put the brakes on Aduhelm when it came out and said, we want more studies. Mm -hmm before we're going to pay for this. Now they're starting to say they're going to pay for it. So everybody's kind of falling like dominoes with these drugs, but they have some very serious side effects. And in fact, people have died on these medications. The biggest so side death effect, is a side effect, but what oh, else are the side effects? Is. Yeah. <laughs> what happens is a significant percentage, we're talking in the range of about 40% of people who take these pills will have brain swelling and or brain bleeding. And this brain bleeding has been fatal to a number of people in the studies. It is mainly not people. to mention painful along the way too. I mean, if you've got brain swelling, that's hurting, right? Yeah. Even though your so, brain gets a little smaller as you get older, and there's a little bit more room in there, but it's still it's how much room do we? Yeah. I don't have an extra side room in my brain. Yeah. So that's the risk. That's a very significant risk. Now on the other side, well, is it worth it? Is this something that's going to make my Alzheimer's better? That I'd be willing to take that chance. Well, unfortunately, once again. Just like you were alluding to in your question, the improvement was a very, very tiny statistical change uh -huh. in observed testing without really causing any change in the way the people felt or the way the people mm -hmm. functioned, really. And so, once again, it's very controversial. In fact, when these drugs, when Adjuhelm, the first drug, was presented to the FDA, their research scientists all voted against it and said, no, this is not no good and not mm -hmm. worth the side. But they did a little end around where the head of the FDA went to a couple of independent scientists who said, yeah, maybe it's worth it, and somehow got it approved as a special condition, given that they would do more research after it was improved, which, of course, is like trying to close the barn door after the horse is out. So is this, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring the P word, the politics. Money and politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I just wanted to hear it from the inside, and they say, like, yeah, never money assume. Money and politics. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the thing, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make a strong statement here, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm go ahead. I'm at the point in my career where I kind of say what I feel. Me too. So go for as it. Politic <laughs> as I used to be, I would wager that this drug, if this drug were presented to the Food and Drug Administration as a potential drug to treat any other disease we have, it would have mm -hmm. been turned flat. I think it's because it was for Alzheimer's that they gave it a slide on these horrible outcomes. And so my, my, my 
editorial comment that's a strong comment is sure i think this rec represents a great deal of sigma and cynicism and a negative view by our doctors researchers and the advocacy organizations toward the life of a person with dementia that we would think that their life is so hopeless and horrible that we would give them a drug that we would never give anybody for any other disease heart disease diabetes because it bad drug has to be better than nothing for these poor people and i think that's a really dangerous view sad it's a sad statement too it. it's very sad right because we see people who are living well with a diagnosis of dementia and we want to give them hope and we want to give them the best access to well-being we can and this kind of pervasive attitude that well i'd never give this to my heart patients but it's good enough for you i think this is this reflects a very sad trend that reflects the stigmas that we've had about dementia but now they're written into drug approvals, which makes them one step more dangerous than just ignoring somebody in the conversation or something like that. You know, you said somebody can live well with dementia. And I would tend to agree with you from the outside, not seeing a lot of not, I mean, I care for my mom long distance with dementia and with our AIDS. She, considering the situation, she was happy, she was well cared for, we laughed, we sang, there were all sorts of things that she did that if she had taken them out of a care home, that if she had been there, would not have happened. But even still, they were joyful days. It wasn't like sad and depressing, and she had an illness. That was, you know, guess what? You've got cancer, not every day is going to be a good day. So. Yeah. I, and I appreciate it was, it was, hearing that, right? Let's face it, you know, whether you have Alzheimer's or some other forms of dementia, yes, it's a, it causes disability. It's permanent. It can be progressive in many people. It can lead to death in many people. So it's not like life is easy. But right. if someone had a stroke and lost the function of their left side and was never going to get it back, we don't say to them, well, unless we can make that go away, you can't possibly live a meaningful life. You know, and yet we say that, but that's kind of what we're saying with dementia is that until we can make this better, you don't have a hope. It's this whole, uh, what people call the tragedy narrative around dementia, that it has to be a tragedy that, that you can't have a hopeful life until we give you a pill to make it go away. And there's a lot of in between there because there are going to be people with dementia. If we're going to live to be 90 years old, you know, our bodies break down and brains break down. And this idea that, as you said, we can wave a magic wand and make this go away is not real. What's real is to say, okay, this is what we've got. Let's make the most positive Every day count, what right? you have. Exactly. Just yeah. what you said. Every day counts. You know, there was something I recently heard before we got on together about a doctor who made a comment that in his third year of medical school, he was told not to care too much, hmm. which is very, a very sad statement on the whole industry of caring, right? I mean, this yeah. is, maybe there's an oxymoron going on there somewhere along the line. But when we talk about the whole drugs, because this is what our conversation is about right now, we can get into another show on really about quality of life and how to improve this, which I'd like to do. But, but there are other things that are going on that we have some level of control on. I mean, we talked about the drugs that are dealing with the, the diagnosis, right? But then we've got this whole antipsychotic issue that we're dealing with, the hallucinations that you might have or depression. I mean, gosh, if you've got if you've got dementia, I guess at some point you're going to be depressed. But yeah. if I don't have dementia, sometimes I'm depressed. So right. And I will say, just to make a little distinction, the one class of drugs for which there can be benefit 
still is antidepressants. So if you have clinical really? depression with dementia, then the antidepressants tend to be fairly safe, particularly the newer ones, and they can be helpful. So I would not withhold an antidepressant in someone who I thought was clinically depressed. Although some people with some kinds of dementia do look depressed, even though they're not, and the drugs don't work for everybody. So you just have to be careful. So I'm going to go back to the question again, then. If somebody has dementia and or some sort of cognitive issues are going on, and they can't communicate well, just like sometimes a stroke patient can't communicate. Yeah. How do we know that they're depressed? We sometimes don't. We may look for what are called the vegetative signs of depression. So people who are not eating well, who are losing weight, who, are, who appear to be withdrawn, who appear to not engage as well as they should, maybe not sleeping well. But of course, dementia can cause some of those things. It right. can cause people to not sleep well at night, for example, it may change their ability to eat by themselves. So we have to recognize when it's just a matter of you need more help, meals, mm -hmm. you need food cut up for you, or you need somebody assisting you. So it can be very tricky. It can be very tricky. And that's why I do a lot of training around how do we improve our communication skills and how do we improve our observation skills? And when all else fails, what are some things that we can try that are safe that may actually lead to some improvement? But Imagine I won't that's deny even... that I've given antidepressants occasionally to people with dementia who I thought might be depressed, but they couldn't tell me and I didn't know. And sometimes it right. helped, sometimes it didn't. I would imagine that even the observation component from a doctor is difficult because you only have a short period of time. Do you also help family members better understand how to communicate with a loved one? Because Absolutely. We, and I'm not saying that we did this or others do it in general. But sometimes you're just so exhausted as a caregiver. I've seen it with others where they just let mom or dad sort of sit there like a lump in a chair and it's like, I just can't be bothered. I'm going to go yeah. away. I'm going to just yeah. forget it. They're quiet. So I don't need to observe. I don't need to talk. I don't need to be engaged. Yet the mm -hmm. kind of conversation that goes on takes a little bit more time when you've got some sort of cognitive impairment. It's not like you and I talking like this where we can banter back and forth real fast and pick up. I'll give you a few tips, but yes, I do. I speak to all those groups and it's interesting because I was just at a conference up in Canada last week and someone asked me, knowing I'm a doctor, you know, have I spoken to this medical organization's conference or that medical organization? Sure. And I used to go to those meetings when I was in practice, but in the last 10 or 15 years when I've been doing this education, I don't go to the medical conferences much. I certainly want doctors to read my books and everything, but as you said, doctors don't spend the time with people that the care aides, nurses, and family members do. So where am I doing education? I'm going to nursing home conferences. I'm going into nursing homes. I spoke at the National Consumer Voice Conference a couple of years ago. Oh, they're great. Yep. I'm going on a speaking trip in Europe in the fall. And for example, one of the places I'm going is the Faroe Islands. So they have me giving a couple of full-day seminars for different nursing home staff. And I'm also going to give a community talk because I think that even though I want doctors to change their approach, I think you get more bang for the buck with the people who are closest to the person because every interaction throughout the day, the, the summary of those interactions is much more important than once a month when the doctor comes in and looks at the person. Yeah, and there's the ability for them to understand the person because they're closer. You know, there are nurses' aides in nursing homes who can teach me a lot more about the person because they're with that person several hours a day. I and imagine. if I pop in once in a while, I can't possibly know that person as well as they do. And so with the right guideline, with the right ways of thinking, they usually find the solutions. They don't walk into homes and tell people the solution to a challenging problem. I tell them how to think, how to approach the problem, 
And ultimately, they find solutions that were right in front of their eyes before. It's getting down into the weeds, so to speak, right? It's down on the floor at eye level all all the time. And I always tell people, you got to take time to sit down. It can be 30 seconds, but you can't stand over people. And there's three reasons to sit down is the first thing. Number one, it does facilitate eye contact, communication, seeing the face, hearing the words. Secondly, that when you stand over somebody, there is this, there's this feeling of control, domination. And particularly if a person is feeling controlled, feels like they don't have any input, maybe is somewhat resistive to other people's ideas, that kind of imposition is going to really hamper your communication. And the third one is the really important unspoken message is I have time. And it's not mm-hmm. the length of time you spend. You don't have to sit for 20 minutes having a conversation. But to sit in a chair instead of standing up or worse yet, poking your head in the door and saying, I'm about to go on break. Do you need anything? No one's going to stop you when you do that. But when you sit down, you really are giving a person who has difficulty expressing themselves the ability to relax and to open up in ways that they can't when you're when you are thinking about other things. And that's another big key is being present. You have to be 100% in the moment. This is not a place for multitasking. It's not a place for thinking about what just happened or where you're going to go next. You've got to carve out a space that says, right now, I am fully present. Because a person can sense your inattention, and that's enough. When you have trouble communicating or remembering, that's enough to shut somebody down. I would imagine that's probably even more so with somebody who has some sort of cognitive impairment. They pick up on things with a lot more sensitivity than we realize. And if they become anxious because we're anxious, then like, forget it. Then we're off on a whole nother trip. But the whole idea of just even stopping and looking somebody in the eye or gently holding their hand or taking a breath yourself, whether you're a doctor or a family caregiver or an aide, I would think would just take that edge off a little bit so that hopefully you have a lower chance of burnout yourself because it's stressful, right? And you're ticking off all my major boxes. So the next communication box is being aware of body language, both yours and the other person's. But you're absolutely right. If you are stressed, if you are, people read body language more than they hear the exact words that are spoken. That's right. There's longstanding research that was done by Moravian back in the 70s. It showed that even without dementia, with you and I, if we're having a conversation that has any emotional content, only about 7% of my message comes from the actual words I say. Whereas right. another 28% is from the way I say them, the kind of expressions that go with it. And then fully the majority, 65%, is from the nonverbal body language. And when people so you have can't see me words, rolling my eyes, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if people have trouble with the words, then that 7% gets smaller right. and the body language gets bigger. And I've seen a lot of people get in trouble. I've done it myself because we present ourselves with what we think are the right words, but our body language is speaking much more loudly. So if you are frustrated with somebody, your frustration is going to come through, not the nice, kind words you're trying to say. So it's really important in getting back to that mindfulness to really find a way to center ourselves and to really enter that person's space with as much calm and centeredness as we can, because otherwise we may make the situation worse instead of this being present, no matter where you are, whether it's in job or caregiving or with a child, is one of the key things period with human connection, yet it's something that we've sort of lost touch with because presence is AI. You know, I I want to do a show and find out whether ChatGBT (laughs) is controlling your doctor or not. Uh, I had an interesting (laughs) comic conversation about AI and robotics and dementia talking about what I think the limitations are of AI. And some of these things I'm talking about are some of those limitations. 
I think there are nuances in communication. I'm not sure a computer is ever going to really be able to pick up on. But this, as you mentioned before, this really highlights the importance of self-care for those people who are supporting people living with dementia. Because if you are burned out, your burnout will not help that person. We always use the expression, you know, put your oxygen mask on first before helping. Because if you're not in any good shape, you can't help it. So the people lean on as much of a support network as they can. I wonder what your take is, and we're talking all about the caregiver providing support to the person with some sort of cognitive impairment, but can that person who has a certain level of advanced dementia or Alzheimer's or cognitive challenge provide care back to the caregiver? Well, we want you to try to find every way that they can do that. I use, a, I use an approach when I talk about the hopeful non-drug approaches that focuses on different aspects of well-being and the fact that these aspects of well-being are important to all people, all ages, races, nationalities, faith, traditions, and yet they're not what we think about when we think about caring for people with dementia. We think about personal care, body care, those kinds of things. And those things are life-giving needs. And one of those is the idea of having meaning or purpose. And that means opportunities to give care to others as well as to receive it. And that's one of the principles of the Eden Alternative, which is one of the movements that I've been strongly associated with in, in working with long-term care. But the point is that everybody needs a purpose. I can tell you right. that my mother, who, um, who passed away last year, spent the last two years of her life in a nursing home. And it was an excellent one. It was one of the greenhouse homes that I helped open in Rochester. It was one of the best. But one of the things that made her suffer more than her physical illness was the fact that she could not do for others because she'd been a mm. caregiver all her lives. And so we don't want to do fake stuff. We don't want to give people washcloths to fold and then mess them up and bring them back and fold them over and over again because people see through that, even with advanced dementia. We want people to do whatever they can to help. So, for example, going back to either a home or a nursing home, you know, if the person can't cook the meal, why can't they set the table? Why can't they fold the napkins that are going to be used so that they can actually use and see the outcome of what they're doing to contribute to the life of the house? And when a person can't even do those things, just saying, what do you think? Just saying, would you taste the sauce? sauce? Do you think it has enough salt? You know, just asking people's opinions, asking them to tell you how they feel about it. Too often we see it as a one direction, that, we, that they're incapable, we have to care for them. But we are taking away that. My greatest teacher was the late Dr. Richard Taylor, who didn't teach me through medical school. He was a psychologist who lived with Alzheimer's for 15 years. And we got to know each other. We traveled together. We made videos, spoke together. He eventually died, ironically, not of Alzheimer's, but of of cancer. He was still Mm -hmm. traveling when he got sick. And he said something that I think is really important. He says, I need to be enabled and re-abled. And by enabled, he meant there are things that I can't do that I need some cueing or some help. And you can help me with those. But re-abled means there are things I can still do that you've kind of taken away from me. So I've forgotten about. And I want you to remind me that I can do them and re-able me so that I can continue to do for myself and for others to any extent that I can. Because that's the life-giving thing. People die because of lack of purpose. They really do. I think that is so important and so critical. And one of the things that, that my aides did for mom and dad, and people who listen to the show know that I did this from 1,200 miles away. I was up in Connecticut. Mom and dad were down in Florida, but always in touch with them and the aides and family members so that we could do this as a unit together. But I remember seeing pictures of cupcakes that were made and then the icing put on. 
And then mom and dad would decorate them. My dad had blue icing all over his face afterwards. And it was just the purpose. Or I, when one of our aides, a son of hers, had died suddenly in a tragic accident. And it wasn't until my father passed that she pulled me aside and she said, Nancy, your father helped me more with the death of my son than anybody else. And I said, really? Tell me more about it. Well, I had a sister who passed away when she was three years old from childhood leukemia. And dad never talked about it through a course of our lives. I was a kid. I was five years old. He never brought the subject up. But he counseled her on how to deal with grief. And that, hearing that story from me after he had passed, was such a great gift to know that he was able to do that. But the fact that he offered and he shared and he told stories and he said, this is how you deal with it. It's hard. But if you need to talk, I'm here. So even at 98 at the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. He did that. There were a couple of Florida psychologists several years ago who did a study where they studied several several women living with dementia. And dementia was severe enough that many of them could not correctly name all their children or say sure. what day it was. And yet when they asked them to give advice, like one of the one of the researchers who was a woman of childbearing age said, I'm thinking of starting a family. What advice do you have? They found that they were able to dispense advice and wisdom pretty much at the same level of people without dementia. Wow. And that they could also, if they were cooks, they could teach a recipe to people as well as people without dementia. So there's there are a lot of, and our standard testing doesn't test those. We say, do you know what day it is? Can you spell the word world backwards? And that tells us that somebody has a certain stage, but there are things people can do uh, that we don't test for that even in the so-called late stages of dementia are very capable. You know, people can maybe play the piano or sing songs from years ago, or they can read a book to a child, or they can dispense advice, or they can see that someone next to them is upset and they can provide comfort. As you just described with your dad, there are um, really uh, many things that we can tap into if we're just open to the idea that people are more than just uh, some of their cognitive tests. Right. So this brings just one other question, and I could go on for days on this subject, but I won't do that for everybody who's listening. We could, we'll do multiple <laughs> shows, I think, together on this one. Yeah. But if we were able to do this with my folks because we had brought them back to a house or a home that we bought and really made it a home environment with around-the-clock aids, and I know not everybody does that, and I understand some families need to go to a care facility or a nursing home. Totally understand. I'm not saying it's the wrong thing to do. It wasn't the right thing to do for us, which was which is okay. But if they're in that kind of environment, they don't get the same kind of engagement. So is that a problem, you think, in the whole care homes altogether, especially when you might have one aide or one staff member for every 15 residents? And there's difficult to have that interaction between the residents themselves is, or the patients as they're referred to as residents versus people who are not impaired. Yeah, I think that that is a pervasive problem in long-term care, but it can be a problem in the home too. And once again, as you mentioned, if uh, someone who's caring for somebody, a family member doesn't know how to communicate or just assumes a person right. can't do things and does for them, you can see withdrawal and just in disengagement on just as high a level. And in fact, when I worked at what I consider was a good quality, a nursing home in Rochester, we often saw people who got better when they moved in because they were being engaged, because they had three shifts of people who were not burned out caring for them because yep. they had access to activities and they had become isolated in their home mm -hmm. with a spouse or family member who didn't really know how to engage them. So I think it goes both ways. 
I think it's a matter of knowing how to engage. And certainly the long-term care system is a system that puts all the engagement in the hands of a few recreation therapists and doesn't right. teach every person in every interaction how to make that interaction meaningful. How can you make a shower meaningful? How can you make greeting somebody and getting them up or giving them pills meaningful? How can we all create a relationship around the person? And part of that is, as you said before, taking away some of that professional distance and really getting to know that person and opening up to that person in a way that maybe the traditional training tell us to do before. Yeah, I'm going to take a slight sidestep because we talked about the interaction with people. One of the things that we talked about early before we started to record was about um, the sedative types drugs, the Benadryl mm -hmm. and the, you know, yep. all those things. Yeah. And what caught my attention was the fact that well, my dad used to take Zequil, um, and I helped him go get it. So I'm an enabler, and I didn't know it. I think that was just that was not Benadryl. It was not a drug. It was just going to chill him out, and he could actually get some sleep because he was always a worrywart and not a great sleeper anyway. And if that helped him relax a little bit, that's okay. But when I found out that we had open bottles of Benadryl that were being given without my approval, I knew that Benadryl was not a good thing and yeah. to be taken at, at the extent that it was. I mean, they were just sort of this one particular aid was knocking him out. And a sleepy person is an easy person to take care of, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so what's going true. on with that front? And how can yeah. we, you know, and what happens at an early age? Because you mentioned it can, it can you, you don't need this stuff at 65. It's bad for you too. Yeah, that's something we need to be aware of. And I think most consumers are not really aware of this since they get old. Benadryl is bad in older people. And Zequil probably contains a relative of Benadryl and the combination would be even worse to take two antihistamines. The only reason Benadryl is used for sleep is because it was made for allergies. You know, it was the type of thing I had to take for hay fever when I was right. a kid. And it would knock me out. It knocked everybody out. So they said, well, since it knocks people out and doesn't do much else, let's use it as sleeping. So everything you can think of, Sominex and Seratan and Advil PM and Tylenol PM, those are all... Thank bad. you, FDA, right? Again. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> And thanks, thanks. I still think that the idea of going to media advertising of prescriptions was a big mistake. But anyway, um, what happens is I mentioned that there's a chemical called acetylcholine in the brain and that this is seriously diminished in people with Alzheimer's. And many older people don't have Alzheimer's, but even so, as part of brain aging, we start to lose acetylcholine in the brain. So when you get to be 65 or 70, you may only have half as much of that as someone who's 25 years old. You're working fine. That's enough for you. But the problem is that these drugs, like the antihistamines, are what we call anticholinergic. One of the things they do is they cut down your level of acetylcholine. So let's just, I'm just throwing numbers. These aren't real. But let's just say that for you, if you had 30% of the acetylcholine you needed, you'd have dementia. Okay. You might have 50%. But if you take one of these pills, it might lower your level into that 30% range so that you can temporarily think like a person who has Alzheimer's. And so these drugs can cause confusion, even in people that don't have any obvious cognitive difficulties. And they say that drugs like Benadryl, the older class of antihistamines, should not be taken by anybody 65 or older. They say that drugs like Zequil should not be taken by anybody 65 or older. And there are many, many other over-the-counter drugs. And I think that people sometimes aren't aware because they, they equate over-the-counter with easy and safe to take. Right. We geriatricians in the office do something called a brown bag test, where we ask everybody to take every pill bottle that is in their house, put it in a big brown bag, and bring it in so we can go through and see what's in there. 
And even if you haven't taken it in five years, if it's in your cabin, that there's a chance you could pop it in yep. your mouth. And I know that people sometimes hold on to these things because pills are expensive. And yeah, it's 20 years old, but I might have that pain again, right? And yep. so it's really important to weed out because as you get older, you are more likely to have side effects from pills. And when you have even the smallest degree of cognitive change, you are much more likely to have side effects from these pills. So is there any way to get more acetylcholine in our brain after well, age 65? There's really no way to... I'm asking for my husband. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, this is what the drugs like Aricept were meant to do. And as I said, they don't give you more. They just, you know, you secrete it into the nerve space, makes its mark, and then it gets degraded very quickly. And what these drugs do is they prevent it from being broken down. So it just sits there for a few milliseconds longer. And so it's yeah. kind of like, in a way, it's kind of like flogging a dead horse. You're kind of pushing the nerves, the medicine to stay there longer, the, the chemical, it's not making more, it's not helping heal your brain cells. And the truth is that those drugs do have a finite lifespan. You cannot, uh, Aricept doesn't help you forever. Even if it helps you, it might just be a period of months to a couple of years before the effects really start to wear off. So unfortunately, there's nothing that increases. It. We haven't got that yet. No vitamin B12 extra, you know, like yeah. shots. Or... <laughs> no, <laughs> what about stem cells? You know, no stem, stem cells, cells. are going to help. Well, that's another thought. The stem cells are starting to work with Parkinson's disease. But once yes. again, we have a definite area of the brain where there are cells that are located that produce that neurotransmitter, dopamine. And so they, they have something a little more exact to work with. I'm not sure that there's we've gone very far. And I'm not the expert here. But I'm not sure we've very, very gone very far with stem cells that produces acetylcholine like is in many areas of the brain. Right. Well, there's so much more that we could talk about, <laughs> Alan, but I think, you know, right now there's we're going to take us a, a break at the moment and yeah. we'll come back and do another show again soon. Yeah. How's that? And we should yeah, we should definitely dive into the antipsychotics because because now there's a new one that's been approved and it's going to make it sound like it's okay to use it. But just as a preview, the new drug that the FDA just approved is every bit as dangerous and every bit as ineffective as all the other antipsychotics that we're trying to get rid of. The political climate for approval is a little different now than it was when the other drugs were submitted 20, 25 years ago. It still has the same black box warning. It increases the risk of death. It increases the rate of cognitive decline. It causes movement disorders, falls, confusion, sedation, lots of other things. So it is not a panacea. It's, I think, dangerous to approve the drug. So I think we can dive into that maybe next time along with maybe some alternate ways of helping people when they're in distress. Yeah, and I certainly want to talk about, just for those who are listening, you know, the whole issue of medication and hospice, which is a whole other area to go into. Absolutely. And just even understanding the kinds of drugs that are given when you're during, you know, going through hospice. Even what we dealt with my folks, I was concerned, like, are we doing these things? Are we going to kill them any earlier? Well, it was only a few days that they were in hospice. But I guess really, as family members, we, we don't want that to happen any even, yep. a, even a minute or sooner than it has to, right? I've just been through it. It's one thing to be a doctor, another thing to be a family. You have a whole perspective than you did yeah. as a clinical person. So I get that completely. Thank you, Alan. This is Dr. Alan Powers, who's with us here today. And he's a geriatrician and expert on aging and dementia and drugs and not drugs. And the list goes on. You'll have all his information details in the episode notes. And as I always like to say at the end, if you like the show, please share it with a friend or a family member or somebody that you know that's just starting to go through this whole process because it can be your gift to them. And it's my gift to you. So we'll not see you soon, but we'll hear you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.
This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright Caremanity LLC. 